If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, our text this evening is in chapter 1 of Job. We'll be focusing specifically on verses 13 through 22, but I would like to read from verse 6 to the end of the chapter. If you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is the inerrant Word of God. It is the word of the one and only living and true God. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. And it is the word of life. Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. But I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to see, to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from this your word, that we would learn from this episode in the life of your servant Job. 
We thank you, O Lord, that you have written it down forever in Scripture, that you have named Job your servant. And so we ask this evening, Lord, that you would number us among your servants so that no matter what falls us, no matter what circumstances we have, that we would know that you are our God and that we belong to you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We looked last week at the person of Job and of the setting in which the book of Job will occur. When you talk about the book of Job, everyone thinks immediately of suffering and of difficulties and of trying circumstances. And it's just a matter of time before the storm breaks. Perhaps you know that feeling you've looked out over a wide expanse of Texas prairie as you're traveling, and you see huge black clouds rolling in. And you wonder when they will hit, and when that rain that seems to only fall in Texas, where a single drop is like a bucket, will come down in torrents. Perhaps during the midst of that kind of storm, you've looked out and seen the huge bolts of lightning strike down from heaven, and hit the earth, followed shortly thereafter by the loudest thunderclaps that you could hear. It's one thing to stand out or to sit in one's car and watch a storm. It's another thing to be out in the midst of it, to experience the storm, to experience the fear that goes along with it, the trying difficulties and times. And that is what we are about to experience with Job this evening. The storm is about to break upon Brother Job. And I would have us look at this storm and Job's reaction to it to instruct us as we face the storms of life that will come. You'll note, I don't say if they will come, but will come when they come. I would like us to first see the clouds as they gather as we think about the circumstance that sets up before what befalls Job. And then we will look after, at the, after the clouds that gather, we will look at the fury of the storm. The clouds will gather and the storm will be furious. But then finally we will see the calm that comes after the storm. So let's look together at the gathering clouds, the fury of the storm, and the calm after the storm. What do I mean by the fact that the clouds gather? Well, it begins here in verse 6 as we see Satan come before the counsel of God to come into the very presence of God. Now, this causes no end of difficulty for many. Some wonder why Satan is permitted in God's presence. Some say that he is an interloper here. And we'll look and point to the language that says that the sons of God came to present themselves and Satan came also, by the way. He kind of crashed the party, as it were. He didn't have a ticket, but he comes in. Others say, no, Satan is involved here. He is one of the angelic beings, even if he is a demon. And God summons them all together. And we start to think about where Satan can be. Can he be in this portion of heaven or in that portion of heaven? Or is he confined to hell? Can he walk the earth? And I think while Job tells us something about the activities and the permission of Satan, that this 
counsel that we look at is not primarily about what Satan is permitted to do. You see, if we focus merely on whether Satan is permitted to be there and permitted to speak, I believe we're looking in the wrong place. You see, this counsel is laid out so that all of the angels, the sons of God, can come into the presence of God. But this is not a counsel like we might have a session meeting where everyone sits around a table and we all with equal voices speak and take a vote. There is no vote in this council. It is very clear that God is sovereign, that he rules, that he is in complete charge of the universe and of this council. And this in and of itself is a refutation of, of mythology of the day. You remember we looked last week and we said throughout Job we're going to see mythological things like Leviathan and like other gods being referred to. This is one of them. In ancient mythology, it would be an ordinary thing for all of the gods to have a council together and to argue and lie and fight and trick each other to come to an outcome. Some of you, especially perhaps some of you in school, would recall this happening in Greek mythology, where you have Zeus, who is the king, who, if he's not being blackmailed by his wife Hera, is being tricked by one of the other gods. Even though he's supposedly in charge, he really isn't fully in charge. He's kind of half engaged. If we were to to picture Zeus in our modern day, we would picture him on a big fluffy couch with a beer in hand, hoping not to be interrupted while watching the football game by all that's going on around him. In theory, he's in charge, but he's not really engaged. That's not the case here with God. God is in complete charge, and when Satan comes and presents himself, he immediately says to him, from where have you come? And it is an interrogation. It is a question that God puts to Satan, because Satan is indeed inferior. He is interrogated by God. And Satan answers in a fashion that we would expect from his character. He's evasive, he's mocking, and he avoids using proper respect. He says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Have you ever gotten that kind of an answer from your kids? What did you do today? Stuff. Well, how was it? Good. Where are you going? Out. Right? It's this kind of answer that isn't an answer. There's no attempt to really give a clear answer here. And that's what Satan is doing. But there's a little bit that is insightful into his character as well. We looked at this. He's going to and fro about the earth trying to make trouble to stir the pot everywhere that he can. And then our Lord says to him, Have you considered my servant Job? And you'll recall that this has more of a, of a connotation of, are you eyeing him? Are you after him? Are you thinking about trying to do something to him? And Satan again answers God's statement about Job being blameless and upright with a mocking language. He says, does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? Haven't you helped him out? Haven't you put a hedge around his house and his family? And the word here for hedge is to make a fence with thorns, thistles, and briars. It's the kind of fence that you don't even want to walk up against, let alone climb. And then he says, haven't his possessions increased? 
And the word here for increased is actually stretched out and spread out over the area. You see, Satan is saying, of course Job likes you. Look at you. You've protected him like crazy. And you're causing him to grow and to be wealthy at the expense of everyone else. Of course he likes you. It's obvious. You can almost sense the sneering and mocking in his voice. And also notice in verse 11. Now, if we were to go and meet the President of the United States, even if we didn't like the President of the United States, we would probably shake his hand. Say, yes, sir, if we were asked the question. Hello. We would use proper etiquette just because you do that in that context. Satan is standing in the very presence of God and he doesn't. He doesn't say, my Lord. He doesn't say, I am your servant. He says, you. And as a matter of fact, the language that he uses is the language of a command. He says, hey, you, stretch out your hand. Hey, you, go after him. He uses language that we wouldn't use in front of our parents before the living God. This is the adversary that is against Job. This is what we can see, the clouds that are gathering against Job and his family. So it shouldn't surprise us that when the storm hits, it will be furious. But before we give Satan too much credit, I want you to remember in the back of your mind, we'll touch on it later, that it is God's counsel that Satan is at. It is God who initiates the conversation about Job, and it is God who gives the permission. Don't forget that. So we see the clouds that are gathering. And then in verse 13, the fury of the storm begins to strike. The first thing that we see are the disasters that come upon Job. These are the kind of disasters that we don't even like to read about, let alone to have experience of. These disasters are progressive in the way that they come. But the first thing that we see about these disasters is there is a calm before this storm. Now, there was a day, verse 13, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Now, the picture here is that this is the day, the birthday of one of the children that had been described earlier when all of the children get together and they have a week-long party. So Satan is not rushed right out from the council to attack Job. We might have expected that, right? He's got so much pent-up hatred against Job and God, we might expect Satan, the minute that he leaves God, to attack Job. But he doesn't. You see, Satan is cruel, but he is also crafty. He waits until a specific day for an important day. And so Job experiences this storm that comes upon him completely unawares. I think a good illustration of this that many of us know or are aware of from history is the hurricane that hit Galveston in 1900. This is before the seawall. This is before we had weather tracking that can track hurricanes as they begin as small storms off the coast of Africa. Right? Maybe that's what you did with Hurricane Ike you went to the website like I did and you watched it come all across the ocean, all the way up the Gulf, and they could tell you within an hour or two of when it was going to hit. In 1900, in Galveston, it was a relatively nice day. There were some clouds in the air. No one thought that there was anything about to come upon them. 
And the storm came with such fury and such violence and so unexpectedly that 8,000 of the 38,000 residents were killed. They didn't even think to flee, let alone have time. That's what's happening to Job here. You see, this is likely perhaps a day in which Job would have offered one of his sacrifices for his children. And his children certainly aren't aware of it. The very mention here of wine reminds us of the biblical concept of joy. Wine is joy in the Bible. They are rejoicing in each other's company. They are having a good time. They are enjoying the family and the life that God has given to them. And then all of a sudden, this cumulative, progressive series of disasters come. One after the other, a messenger comes. And his story is similar. Everything is gone but me. And this is actually a part of the book that's in verse. It's in couplets, which strengthens the rolling nature of this. You know, first the Sabaeans come in and they take out all the oxen. And then lightning, fire of God, comes from heaven and destroys all the sheep. And then the Chaldeans come and they get rid of all of the camels. And then finally, Job's children are destroyed. Now, I want you to look back a bit here at Job chapter 1, verse 3. And I want you to notice how the Bible lays out the wealth, the blessing of Job. What's first? Sons and daughters. What's second? Sheep and camels. What's third? Oxen and donkeys. Now, in what order are they taken from him? In the exact reverse order. Oxen and donkeys. Sheep and camels. And then, his children. You see, just as he had been blessed, now it is taken from him. And so, this becomes like a snowball going down a hill. You know, it's bad enough to hear your donkeys are killed. At least the valuable sheep are safe. And then the sheep are destroyed. Well, at least the very valuable camels are safe. And then they're destroyed. Well, at least I have my family. And then they're destroyed. And you can imagine that the effect of this is far worse than if one messenger had come and said, everything you have is gone. You see, it's blow upon blow upon blow. The cumulative effect of this is worse. And I want you to see in here the work of Satan. This is by design. It is not a coincidence that these messengers come in on top of each other before Job has any opportunity to recover. Has this ever happened to you? You've got bad news and you're trying to deal with it and more bad news happens? I kind of had a morning like that this morning. I was speaking with a few people this morning about it. I got up this morning after my alarm not working. And so I got up and quickly got up and got out the door and got here. I'm late. I'm not here on time. I walk in and it's like 95 degrees because the air conditioning doesn't work. So I'm working around trying to get that and then my back goes out. And it was one upon another. You've experienced this as well. This is how the enemy works. And I want you to see that the means that he used are also designed to beat down Job. First, marauding bands come in and take his oxen. The first blow that comes to Job is from his enemies. And before he can form the anti-Sabean defense force, 
a second blow comes, and it's a blow from heaven. It's a natural disaster. As the fire of God, that is lightning, the same kind of fire from heaven, lightning that would have come down and destroyed the captains and groups of 50s, you may recall at the beginning of 2 Kings, when the soldiers tried to come and get Elijah. Lightning from heaven, fire from heaven would consume them. And then a third disaster strikes him. A yet second marauding band. And then a third, or then a fourth, excuse me, a second natural disaster, a windstorm comes in. And it's coming at Job in succession from all directions. If you really study these disasters, you can see that there is probably no more damaging, harmful way for Satan to attack Job than he did. His attack comes from human sources, from apparently divine or heavenly sources, and even just the location of where they come from. You know where the Sabaeans are? Sabaeans are also from the land, it's thought, of Sheba. You remember the queen of Sheba? She's the queen of what? The south. So the Sabaeans come up from the south. And then a storm comes in with fire from heaven from the west. Because that's the way that storms come. That's the way the weather pattern works in the ancient world. And then the Chaldeans come down. You know where the Chaldeans are from, right? They're from Iraq. That's from the north. And then finally we're told that a wilderness wind comes in. A dry wilderness wind. And the wilderness is off to the east. So from every single direction, from every source of every kind, this is the disaster that is coming upon Job. Now, even the number four is illustrative. Because we don't talk about the three horsemen of the apocalypse, do we? Or the six horsemen of the apocalypse. We talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is a biblical number for plagues and disasters. And Satan has designed this specifically to elicit a reaction out of Job. You see, it would be bad enough for roving bands to take his animals or for people to come in and murder his children. But in bringing in natural disasters, Job cannot help but think about God and his protection or lack thereof. Remember, Job does not have the vignette from the heavenly council that we have. It's kind of like the difference that you might have had in describing to an unbeliever what happened at 9-11 versus what happened in Katrina. With 9-11, it's quite frankly much simpler. We can say, well, God must have some reason here, but it's the acts of wicked men. But who do you blame with Katrina? Who do you blame? You start making up things, I guess, like, God is striking New Orleans for its wickedness, even though it also went through Mississippi and destroyed churches. And somehow, as I think I may have mentioned to you, it doesn't skip over and take out Las Vegas. But we try to think about this and and wonder how these types of things can happen in a world where God is in control. This kind of a disaster is absolutely complete. If you think about it, at the end of the day here, no one is left standing. Job has nothing but himself, his wife, and his four servants. Everything else 
is gone. And even those four servants, they were only spared to make the situation even worse. You see, all of these other disasters were designed to soften up Job for the body blow that he got when his children were destroyed. You know, it's kind of like, well, let me think of something very philosophical and theological. Like the movie Rocky. You remember the movie Rocky? You remember Mickey telling Rocky his famous eloquent speech? Rocky, the body, the body, the body, the body. And Rocky's job was to get in there and just keep punching the stomach over and over and over and over and over again. And the idea of that was to soften up Apollo Creed for the big left hook that would take him out. That's what each of these disasters is like. Satan is giving Job body blow after body blow after body blow to set him up for the final disaster that will get him to curse God to his face. Why would God do that? Job might ask that question. Why would God do that? I was just praying for my children. I was just offering up sacrifices. I was hopeful that the Lord would cause them to grow and to flourish and to serve Him. He might have questioned whether God loved him. He might have questioned whether he had sinned. He might have questioned whether there was any purpose or meaning in the world. You see, this is a question that is timeless. It happens when you get back from the doctors with a bad report. It happens when you wonder why in the world your children's lives are the way they are. It happens when you look back and say, it's been 20 years. Why am I working at the job I'm working at? You see, Satan wants us to take our circumstances and focus upon them and to put a cloud between us and God. And he's very good at it. He not only sends disasters upon Job, he puts salt in the wounds. You see, report after report comes in. And the first disaster isn't even done being reported, and the second one is upon him. You see, Satan is not only subtle, but he is also brutal. And this timing was planned by Satan. It all happens in one 24-hour period. It all happens on a special day. It all is set out for maximum effect. This is what Satan is doing to Job. So then we might stop and think, how does the book of Job help us? It just will depress us. We wonder, it gives us more questions than answers. If God's in control, why does he allow these things to happen? If God is pleased with his servant Job, why does he allow Satan to afflict him so? Surely God should be protecting Job, should be wiping Satan out right now. Why doesn't God just get rid of all the sin in the world right this minute? You know, we seek to obey Him. We seek to learn His Word. We seek to raise our children after a fashion that is in accordance with God and His Word. Why do bad things happen? I think we get some of the answer to that in the calm that comes after the storm. Now, there's going to be much more, by the way, of answers in Job. And I'm grateful that this book is in the Scriptures. But let's look at the immediate answer that we are given in the calm that comes after the storm. All of these things pile on Job. 
And in verse 20 through 22, we see his reaction. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you think about Job's reaction here? You see, Satan expects him to just wither away and melt. After all, we've just spent some time here describing how Satan has worked everything in seemingly the perfect fashion to get maximum pain and punishment into Job. And we can imagine Satan in our sanctified imagination sitting back, watching, waiting. I can't wait to see Job curse God to his face. That's going to be great. Not only to see it, but then I can go back and I can give God an earful how wrong he was. And if God's wrong, then God's not God. And maybe then, now, I can be in charge. You see, this is about much more than Job. This is about, is God God? But Job doesn't react like Satan would expect. Job reacts in a different way. But I want to also remind you that Job reacts in a very human way. The first thing that he does is tear his robe and shave his head. Job reacts as one who needs God. Job doesn't say in a stoic voice, well, God gives, God takes away, and walk away. Now, the very first thing Job does is he breaks down and he cries. And he tears his robe, which was probably a very expensive ornamental robe, as a sign of grief. And he shaves his head. He doesn't cut his head like a pagan, but it's a sign of grieving and mourning. He gets out a razor and shaves his head. And if any of you men shave any portion of your face or head, I know how difficult that is with a modern razor with glide strips. Imagine doing that with a bone-honed razor. It's a sign of great grief. You see, Job takes time to grieve. He shows his humanity. There is nothing godly about trying to act inhuman about tragedy. You need to hear that. Because, you see, far often we think as Christians, when we are struck with body blows, what we are supposed to do is to smile, and when everybody says, how are you doing? Oh, we're great. And walk along. When in reality, God calls us to be human. And if someone has just delivered a body blow to you, or you have circumstances beyond your control afflicting you, and someone says, how are you doing? That is God's way of giving you an opportunity to say, I'm having a time. Well, why? Can we pray about it? Can we go to the scriptures about it? You see, that's an opportunity, a divine appointment that God has given to you. Don't ever assume stoicism is Christianity. It is not. Children, when you have difficulties and problems, even though you might think they're small kid stuff, God is calling you to take them to your parents, to not pretend everything is okay, to try and cover them over with lies, to try and cover them over with ignoring them. God is calling you to go to your parents, to seek their help, to seek their wisdom. This is what it means to be a godly 
person. Job acts as one who needs God. But he also acts as one who serves God. Do you notice there's a theme in what Job says? If we were to put it this way in in two statements, Job speaks of his own smallness and of God's greatness. He speaks as one who serves God. He falls down in his grief and he worships. He worships the living God. He doesn't know why these things have happened. He doesn't even exactly know how these things have happened to him. But he knows that regardless of his particular circumstances, God is still God. That's why he can say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He knows the only reason he had any of these flocks, the only reason he had these children, the only reason he has life itself is because of the gift of God. You see, when we think about that that way, it puts a different spin on our lives, doesn't it? It allows us, even though we may disagree and even though we may may be upset, it allows us to make it through the day when our taxes go up 3%. Because we think everything we have comes from God anyway. We have food. We have shelter. When we think of the fact that our children didn't turn out exactly the way that we wanted them to, we can stop and say, the only reason we have any children is because of God. Children come from the Lord. We didn't get into the school that we wanted to get into. The only reason that we're able to exercise our intelligence and to be at school is because God has given us a gift. And Job is very personal here. He does something interesting. Maybe your Bibles show this depending on the translation. Look at verse 21. The Lord gave, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? Perhaps your translation shows that with all capitals. That is Jehovah. That is Yahweh. That is I am the great covenantal name of God. Not once. Not twice. Three times in that verse. This. The next time Job will use this name for God. Is in chapter 38. Job has been touched by God here. Satan thinks he's the one doing the poking. But Job looks at his life and he says, God is in charge. God is my God. God is my covenant God. And I will bless him. And I will not sin. This is the way that Job responds. And Job's response reminds us as we think about this in conclusion. As we ask ourselves the question, who is in control? What is going on here? Why is this happening to Job? We focus in this chapter 1 on all the disasters that hit Job. And before that, as I've said, sometimes we focus upon Satan and what he's doing and why he's in the heavenly court. But have you ever thought about why this heavenly portion, this council, is even listed for us? Have you ever wondered why that shows up here in chapter 1? Job doesn't know what's going on. Why does the Bible put that here for us? If for no other reason than to describe for us 
that all of this is designed by God. All of this is at God's setting. All of this is in God's control. Even when the world seems to be completely spinning out of control, God is at the helm. God is vindicating Himself. He is vindicating His servant. And He is vindicating His rule over all things. All of this is designed by God. And this is not merely some sort of self-serving statement. No, in the Scriptures, this is to show us the sovereignty of God that we might have comfort. Now think about this as you go throughout the week. If God can tell you in His infallible Word that can never lie and is always true, that in the worst situation you could ever imagine, He's in control. As you sit and think about the medical test you're about to have, who's in control? As you sit and think about your children, who's in control? As you think about your job or your finances, who's in control? God's in control of the worst possible situation, not that you've experienced, that you could ever imagine. God is in control. This is a comfort to the believer. We don't know all of the answers to the why questions. But we know the answer to the most important one. The most important one is that God rules over the world and His people. And that He desires their good. And that He will vindicate them and Himself. And that should be enough to take us through the darkest times.